So hi guys, welcome to Young and Limitless. Today we're talking to the very, very lovely Kalo. Um, so Kalo, can I just take you back mm. to the time you were a teenager? What was your favorite food when you were younger? Favorite food? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, probably just spaghetti, white, uh, a bowl of white pasta with nothing but melted butter and cheese on it. Okay. It was my comfort food, you know. That and cold roast potatoes, but... <laughs> I do like pasta, but I do like it with a bit of sauce. I do like sauce. No, I do. That was then. <laughs> Can't eat it now at all, you know. Oh. I won't have it. <laughs> so whilst you were a teenager, how, how was your life? What did your life look like? Well, teenager was, I think it's distinctly divided into two, two, two phases. There was the early teens. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I, I didn't live with my mother then between about the ages of um, 11 I learned to read when I was 10 and I suddenly decided I wanted to go to school. So that's the whole backstory. At 11, I said, right, I want to go and live and be a bit more stable. And I had this other woman who looked after me on and off called Sue, who I called my good godmother. So it was mm-hmm. always a very strange relationship between her and my actual mother. And I lived with her in the East End of London. I mean, there's such a backstory to this that it probably don't have time to go into that now. But I lived with her in the East End of London and went to a very a terrible school, to be honest, in Stratford. Um, from about 11 till 15 um, and had a fairly normal background but because I was living with someone in in one sense she saved my life from where my background of where I come from a very sort of chaotic upbringing Um, on the other hand when you are parented by someone who's not your actual real parent there's this sense of insecurity and eternal gratefulness and and just and she was going for a hard time as a single parent. There was two younger siblings, and in a way, I got a lot of the pressures of like the second adult. I didn't know that at the time, but I think I was getting that. So I mean, I, but my school life was surprisingly well because I had a terrible time in primary school. And what got me to be okay in my school life at that point is I discovered um, the Half Moon Theatre in in um, East London. So I started to develop a front. Okay, and I think that's what helped me cope. With probably most of my um, most of my teenage years, and probably most of my adult life, to be honest, I've probably that gave me a starting place. Uh, but the big change that that happened is that me and Sue used to start. We started rowing a lot, and there were very uh, very combustible, very fiery rows that we had. And I used to end up storming out the house, getting to the end of the street, and then coming back. And it's all tied in with being insecure and all of that. And I was visiting my mum regularly. This hard to get packed up. Yeah, I was visiting my mum regularly at weekends, but she she was a um, a heroin addict. And I was aware of that. But then I heard that she'd come off all on her own, mm-hmm. and I had this like sense of loyalty that I had to go back and be with my mum to help her and support her to 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 be free and to stay like that. And then that coupled with really bad rowing with Sue and a sense of unlike other children, I had this sense that when things went wrong, I thought, well, I can just leave. And I kind of just left. Mm. And I went and lived with my mum and I spent what turned out to be a very um uh very rough year, put it that way, it was good and bad with my mum, who even though she had come off drugs, she promptly went straight onto alcohol. And to be honest, she was far worse on alcohol than she ever was when she was on on drugs. And I um, so that was that was the second part of what I'd say my teenage. When you talk about what was it like as a teenager? So how old were you then? Sorry, I was fifteen. And how did you feel going from Sue's to your mum's, and then your mum 
I think at the time I was totally full of turmoil. That's what I remember now when I go back to being a teenager, <clears throat> is I was a total storm of emotions inside. And everything was extreme. Everything was very passionate and very brilliant, very wonderful or very terrible and very awful okay. um, all the time. And when I went back, I just did it. And I think the only thing that stopped me when things got bad with my mum, stopped me going back to Sue's was pride. And then also Sue got very sick. She got cancer, actually. And mm -hmm. that I couldn't go back either. So I was kind of stuck in this on the one hand, I had incredible freedom. I was trying, I didn't sign up with a different school. So I also left school at that time and it was a completely different end of town. Tried to start another school, didn't know anybody, wasn't in contact with my old school mates. Um, <clears throat> so I was kind of dropping out a lot then. And that's also when I first started taking hash, actually. I had a, there was a neighbor who, who was a daughter of also somebody who was an addict. And uh, we started smoking hash together. Um, I guess that was one of the coping things of the time that we mm -hmm. had. Um, <clears throat> but at the same time, I started hanging out with people who were squatting. And in, I was in Camden, really creative part of London. And there were like all these huge buildings being squatted for big parties. And wow. I was painting murals late into the night. And I was dancing and going clubbing. And I had a few sort of friends who were far too old for me that I hung out with having first crushes dressing up and and doing kind of what the dream teenager probably wants to do without thinking about the consequences <clears throat> of anything and at the same time living with my mum and that was where I mean survival wise I learned to forge her signature so that I could um, get the, our own child benefit otherwise we would have no food Oh, she would go out, spend all the money. She was on benefit. She had lost all her friends. But when you've come off the drug scene, you just lose everything. Um, she was very, um, she was constantly getting boyfriend after another who were violent, just coming back with black eyes. The house was getting trashed. Um, what else? <clears throat> and she would spend all the money on food, wake up in the night, eat it all. There'd be huge bottles of whiskey. I used to tip them down the sink, fill them up with tea. I was constantly trying to battle with her in a way. It was just incredibly, I just took it all in my stride in a strange way because that's just where I was and what I had to do. I knew it wasn't right, but I had this terrible, my relationship just got worse and worse with my mum. But what really put the nail in the coffin was when I got a boyfriend. Um, he was from Bristol. So oh, okay. Bristol. Mm -hmm. um, and he was older than me was a very gentle slow start to the relationship but um it was everything I need away at that time um but my mum got incredibly jealous and she kind of started getting more and more worse she had a really aggressive alcoholic boyfriend at the time and then one day I came home my boyfriend wasn't at home but I had an argument with my mum my mum screamed at me saying your boyfriend's turning me against you um and I said, no, well, you know, and I just disappeared into my room. The next thing I know, I, she's getting her boyfriend to come down and kick my door in okay. on the auspices to say, I need that guy out of my house, thinking that Dan was there, my boyfriend, but he wasn't. And okay. so I was screaming at them saying, he's not here, he's not here. So I opened the door thinking if I showed them that he wasn't here, mm -hmm. um, they'd go away and leave me alone. But then this guy, who Gary his name was, 
um, he leaped on me. And I don't know what happened at that point, but somehow I found myself with my fingers in his eyes and him doubling over in pain and it's a sort of self-protective measure mm-hmm. that I knew I was going to be attacked. And then my mum started kicking me all up and down the side of my, my side, saying, screaming at me, get off my boyfriend, get off my boyfriend. And I had no way out. I was feeling a bit trapped. So, um, somehow I managed to let go and leap out the back window, which was a ground floor basement, into the communal mm-hmm. gardens and go two doors down to the neighbours and get in there, which ironically was also a house full of codeine addicts. Okay. And was where my current boyfriend was living, which is one of the reasons he was coming down. Um, and this guy, Gary, followed me in and they instantly jumped on him and beat him up and shut him up because they just got the first blubbery bits of what had gone on. Oh. And so I was kind of protected by these people at the same time. And it was at that point that I left home. I waited on the doorstep for my boyfriend to come home because no, no mobile phones to warn him. So I was really worried for his safety. My biggest saviour at that point was a woman called Verona, who was this amazingly strong woman who was a single parent quite different to what what now, um, singer, and she was always a friend, and she just said, come to mine. And I basically lived on in her spare room, her child's room. She let me have her child with my boyfriend for about three months while we tried to sort out what to do. But I didn't go to the authorities. I didn't do all the practical things because I was brought up to not be very friendly with the police authorities oh. part of my upbringing because my parents were drug addicts and all of that. So it didn't even occur to me. And then it turned out my boyfriend's parents, uh, not parents, brother um, and sister, uh, brother and, and brother's girlfriend were living in, trying to squat in Bristol. And I just said to Dan, let's just move to Bristol. And that's what we did. So at 16, I moved to Bristol and started squatting with them and very quickly met a whole bunch of people from my past, from my stepfather's um family who people used to look after me when I was little because I was always parceled around a bit and ha- very quickly had my home group group of friends and oh. actually got out of squatting quite quickly into the next step up and squatting some kind of so it's called self-help housing at the time where they let out houses that were barely livable but gave you very cheap rents and, and stuff and and actually my life just got better from the process of moving to Bristol wow. um, but also I was becoming very aware of I was very it was turmoil and there were some bad you know there were some lows and highs within all that but escaping London was about the best thing that I ever did yeah so, so that if kind you could, of gone. summarizes my teenage years in a very if you could go back and tell that younger 16 15 16 year old self you know tell her something that would really help her what would you say thought on some ways there was some driving force in me that just got me out of situations and I think I've had this little runaway girl in me all the time as a survival thing even when I was quite little so I was thinking you know what would I tell myself I did a lot of good stuff I did save myself in a way but the biggest thing that came to me is that when I it's it's something about being kind to myself Mm -hmm. that inside there is like these really extremes of emotions and I would say I still have a lot of what I had then in me now but it's much more I'm able to be much more like kind around it so I I'd say I had the you know as as a teenager I would go into these very dark places and this happened when I was in Bristol quite a bit when I'd go dark maybe it was hormones all those premenstrual whatever it's very dark where I just got trapped inside this kind of the head and the mind 
and and at those points is when I might got got close to like pulling my hair out and banging my head against brick walls you know literally banging my head against walls physically mm. very close to self-harm and in the sense that it felt better to feel that physical pain than it did to cope with this storm that was inside mm. and um and it was this resistance also and the negative voices that were making it bad I, I don't you know whether they're integrated with your thoughts or you see them as separate voices, I always felt helped work my mind out with by saying, okay, well, there's this horrible person in me. Not of me, it was me. I didn't like split off into separate personalities, but okay. a side of me that was very mean to me. And I still have that person who is really mean to me. It doesn't go away, that that critical voice, that negative voice, that you can't do that voice, that you're wrong for getting angry voice, because that was what it was. If I got angry, if I showed any emotion, if I felt upset, I was so unable to be any of those things. I turned it all on myself and just went into this awful self kind of self-hate thing. I don't know what it was, but feeling just wrong I always felt I was just wrong or or I was going mad because that's actually another thing that my mum said she always told me I was going to go mad and every time I had any emotional expression as a child so I as a teenager I genuinely believed that I was treading a tightrope of thinking I was going to go mad so I think mm. that's the big thing I had going on and then I used to feel I was just balancing all the time um and I think if I was going to tell my younger self that um, I would say, be kind, just you can, I'm actually doing stuff now that I would not have had the patience to do then, you know, which is to do with just observing my thoughts as clouds or balloons. They could be stormy, they could be gray, they could be brightly colored. It's as important to do it with the positive thoughts as it is with the negative thoughts just observing them and then letting them go and letting them float by having them feeling it but just letting them float by but not attaching to it just okay I think that's what happens when you're a teenager or what I what happened for me when I was a teenager and I guess this is probably a shed is we attach it's like my whole body was emotional if that makes sense uh-huh um, that it's like I couldn't function once that bit took over it's like nothing else functions. So no matter what I tried to get involved in, no matter what I tried to do, I constantly, and this went into my 20s as well, I constantly found that if something turmoil it happened, that, that it almost scuppered what I was doing. I'd get behind on courses. I'd get behind on work. It would make me physically ill. And there was like no, no ability to cope with this. And learning to be kind and learning, if I could tell her to be kind and and the other thing I'd say to my younger self, I really know now is really important. And what I moved into as an adult is get physical. I, in my case, I was always creative. I was good at singing. I had those outlets. I used to write songs. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to do creative stuff. So I had an amazing amount of emotional outlet. But actually what I found I needed was to not just swallow in the songs of emotion, but I just needed to get out. I needed to. Um, walk be physical I was terrible at PE I was not a physical <laughs> girl you know I, I was but I've discovered as I've come more into who I am that I love quite physical I got into climbing at one point you know and then eventually it led me to dance and I thought I would never be a dancer I found a very different sort of dance because I was the one who went the opposite way to everybody else 
yeah, all sorts of things. I didn't think that, but that all happened later. And I, you know, and I discovered shiatsu at 17. And so I, I was kind of pretty precocious in that way. It's like I knew I needed to save myself. But I, I did something that came up that very strongly when I was talking about going to theatre and getting that is I felt like I was, and I had a dream a long time ago. This came up a teenage dream where I dreamt that um, my uh, my real body was in suspended animation on a spaceship, and I was, and my all my emotionals and mind had been downloaded into a, a robotic version of myself, if you like, and I was manning this spaceship. And the thing was, I was searching for a new world where I'd be safe. And I woke up from this dream and I realized that that's kind of an analogy for what I was dealing with. It's like I developed, I put aside my real self, my vulnerable self, if you like, Mm -hmm. had to become this invulnerable self in order to cope with everything that was going on until I got to a safe place. So when you ask me how I felt, I think I put myself into this invulnerable body that didn't Mm -hmm. do the feelings unless they were totally stormy, totally extreme. But the other extreme of that is I just kept going, kept going. Um, And I think coming to Bristol was part of the new world, the safe place and slowly unraveling and allowing myself to be inhabit my real body um, and be vulnerable, learning how to have emotions. So when those emotions really started to come in I didn't know how to cope with them at all and that's so if I was going to yeah I'd say I needed to be more physical the times I felt best were when I got out to go walk I live in St Werberg's go up on St Werberg's hill Mm -hmm, it was a mm -hmm. big place for me you know I think your Um, dreams are are amazing aren't they the way they show you stuff and when you can unpack them they tell you so much they help you yeah, well, that, I was always really into that. I was brought up in that kind of esoteric world because of all the drugs and skis. And, and I, was, I went traveling a lot. And there were amazing things. I was, a, I was an abandoned, left my own device child on one hand. On the other hand, I had all these interesting ideas. So I was brought up with this idea of the esoteric and listening to dreams was second nature to me. And oh. I, I love the imagery of, of dreams. And I still have pretty wild dreams that I need to sort of unpick apart, you know. And I just use them because I think sometimes they're just like, they're quite, they just let you know what's going on now. I don't see them necessarily as predictive. I just think, well, actually, sometimes I just use quite good imagery mm-hmm. or depending on what you fed yourself anyway in your own, you know, I used to read loads of sci-fi. So I had a science fiction dream, you know. It makes <laughs> sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you said about being kind to yourself, how else could you, how, <laughs> how could they be kind to themselves? Yeah, well, this, yeah, I mean, what, it's just so hard because I think when you're in it, when you're in it, that's what I remember. I was thinking, how easy is it? It's like, okay, I've got now a version of myself now and then. And it's like, mm-hmm. on the one hand, I'm exactly the same person. On the other hand, I'm totally and utterly different. Mm-hmm. And people have met me back then and meet me now, and they don't obviously see the difference until they get to know me better because the external persona is just a natural gravitation of who I always was. But... Mm-hmm then you're so I was so in the mess I suppose that it was so hard to see outside what I needed to do so you know yes you could say you need to do this you need to do that go walking get creative talk to someone um do something just do something um that sometimes but just I literally felt that because I was so overridden and overwhelmed by the storm inside it it felt like I couldn't even move and it I don't know what happened 
to make the little breakthrough that got me out of it. Sometimes I'd be lucky that someone else would be there and just be able to pull me out, but I wasn't always. And sometimes, sometimes the physical thing pulled me out when I shocked myself a bit. And I think a thing about being kind was just going, I can't do anything about this. I'm in this mess. Mm. And I don't need to hurt myself. Just see how it feels just to have this mess. Because as I got older, what I discovered is that when I just allowed those feelings in, when I didn't try to run from them, when I didn't try to take a drug, or I naturally veered away from the drug taking, I actually set a rule for myself that I'd never take drugs if I felt bad or upset or, or anything because of my background. So that's kept me safe. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, like hurting myself or things like that, or overeating would be a big com- big pasta. Yeah, a yeah. really big I can't do it anymore. I mean stuff like that, still forms of self-harm, just learning to go, what would actually happen if I just lay here on my bed or somewhere sit in the garden, wherever it is, on my own, but what would actually happen if I just let all those emotions happen? Very brave, very, very brave. That's a very hard thing to do. It's a very hard thing to do. And I called it, what I used to call it, is I used to um, call it falling to the bottom of the pit. It's like you're teetering. Like for me, I was teetering on my tightrope of mm-hmm. madness. And I thought maybe I just need to let myself fall off. Mm-hmm. And eventually the ground will come up and hit me hard in the face, if you like, or whatever, it will hit. And then there'll be nowhere else to go. And that's kind of what I did. And I know that's quite unusual, probably. Mm-hmm. I had that kind of language just to go. I just, and as soon as I did that, suddenly my pathway got wider it's like the first it's almost the first time it was terrible and but I survived it and mm-hmm. the thing is it's not that that makes everything better but what I learned is I survived it I survived this terrible thing that we're, we're all afraid of this part of ourselves that we're so afraid of and uh, how old were you when you did that sorry I was probably about 17 18 yeah. so you a very the- wide good self sense of self-awareness well, I found shiatsu that helped me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the imagery, I, I kind of because I used to write and sing, I think sometimes when I sing, I wouldn't know what was going to come out of my mouth until it came out. And it was that was one way I found out what I was feeling. Um, and the tightrope analogy came to me probably through that. And, and then when I got that analogy, I was able to say, well, what happens if I fall? You know, just one thing. Yeah, I did. I had a precocious child. <laughs> How did shiatsu <laughs> help you? Um, Yes, it started me on a, on a, um, it brought me into my body. I mean, this is the thing. Teenagers are so, we're, we're I don't know, like, like I said, you know, I wasn't in my body. I was mm. a shell walking around with all these emotions and all these, all this stuff, but I, I wasn't in this body. And, it, and like the, the hitting was a way of coming. And strangely enough, I think oh. when we go towards things you self-medicate so when I was pulling my hair or hitting my head in a way I was trying to get into my body possibly you know um so we do self-medicate but then if you let if it goes on too long the self-medication becomes the addiction doesn't it yes the thing with those things and and kindness was in the falling I know that sounds crazy it was uh, I can let myself fall I can let myself go into this terrible place Mm-hmm. And it turned out not to be that terrible once I was there. And and it then I could just climb back up back up. And then and then the second time it was pretty terrible. And the third time it's still terrible now. 
But actually, each time I survive, each time it's quicker, each time it's easier, and each time it's better. But it's a life process, you know, I think. Yeah, yeah. And the biggest thing I think is if you have to decide, I think, as a teenager, and this is what's really hard, is that you've got to decide that you don't want this to be your life. Mm-hmm. Make and the choice. You've got to know that you have a choice. Mm. Um, and to know that a lot of stuff will keep you where you are, look collusion, you know, that will be from within your own self, with your own family, maybe your peer group, you know, whatever it is, or even just mainly it's ourselves. And most of us haven't been brought up with an awareness that there's choice. And I think I think I was, because of the traveling and stuff, mm. I became aware of choice, that people live their lives in all different ways. How old so, were you when you were traveling? Well, I was like seven and ten or so. I was all over the place, like Morocco, Ibiza, France, Spain, India, Sri Lanka. Um, all wow, there. you were very, very well travelled as a as a child yeah, and young person. My, it's because my parents were drug runners. <laughs> oh, fine. Okay. <laughs> <I went to laughs> Morocco. Be sitting on hash farms with men with guns. I have a photo. Oh my gosh. You know, yeah, and I was just, you know, they were in trucks, they would park up, they would say, go right, go away now. And I was left to run around and do my own thing. And no, you know, all this worry about children running and being outside and all the other fears that are coming down, none of that with me. I was just gone most of the time, um, having just, you know, sometimes given a bit of money to, I was a terrible child. I'd run up bills in restaurants and make them pay for it, all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, but, you were a terrible child, but you were left alone. So what else? Oh, yeah, I was a terrible <laughs> child, but, but survived my upbringing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I wasn't, I had a healthy enough disrespect for my parents. I think yes. possibly that saved me, you know, in a way that I didn't go down their road because that's the other option for children of drug users and users mm. is that you can go down that and I think I knew I had another choice and I could feel the two choice. I could feel more than one choice inside me I could feel the sorts of like men I was attracted to the bad boys and the good boys and I made a choice to go for the good boys and I oh. could, at one point I was offered the possibility of bringing some drugs into the country via my stepfather and I could feel I was needing money at the time and I thought oh that wouldn't be too difficult and I know and suddenly I knew I said no I've got to say no because that's going down my parental road it'd be mm. too no and just knowing that you have a choice um and I think I could tell any young person out there who feels trapped somewhere there's a choice but often it's not an easy choice I don't think it's easy this stuff I don't think there's a quick fix and I don't think mm. there's a quick answer but there are lots of things potentially that you can do that will help and that's the best you can hope for when you're going through it is how can you help yourself what can you do that will make you feel better that isn't addictive that makes sense because we we, there's a difference between what will genuinely make us feel better but what will temporarily just stop us feeling at all Mm. that's two very different things how how did you come to value your sense of self enough to make to give you the balls almost to make the, the, the good choice for yourself? Ah, so a hundred million dollar question. I didn't even, you know what? I did a whole stuff on self-esteem recently and discovered that I have quite low self-esteem, but it's not in every area of my life, but it's still there. And most people look at me and go, well, you've got quite good self-esteem, you know? And I think, well, yeah, but actually 
there's a whole area where I don't, where it's really low. And I think this is what it's about. Often we have quite low esteem. So valuing, how do you value? I think in my case, I just, I just had a fire, maybe some sort of drive or some sort of fire. I don't know what made the difference. I often look at my life and I, I feel like I came out of the room, womb with a sense of, this is not right. I've got to change this. You know, I think there's something in me that had something. It didn't mean I didn't suffer because I absolutely suffered. And I yeah. still, even in relationships today, I still have old hang-ups about being abandoned. I still have this sense of being a good girl. And if I'm not behaved, they're going to abandon, they're going to leave me, you know, and all this, I, I don't give into it. It doesn't mean I, I still have that stuff. And that's why I want to say to anyone who's young, it's not that this stuff suddenly goes away. But I would say I'm so much happier now. In fact, I'm happier than a lot of my contemporaries because I've had to do the work, yes. say, you know, in a strange way. Um, despite having just had cancer, I'm still, you know, um, yeah. I, when I look at a lot of people who haven't gone through half the things I've gone through, a lot of them feel sometimes more stuck than me, almost because they haven't, even though they've had stuff happen in their lives, it's been so hidden and wrapped up in other stuff of normal called normality mm -hmm. that um that they haven't dealt with stuff whereas for me I think the real thing that I've often said is that because my life was so extreme because I knew my mother was so terrible and because I knew my upbringing wasn't normal I equally knew that I had to do something about it and I was able to address it more directly mm -hmm. whereas I think of people as I've got it and when I was young I used to think other people they know nothing you know I was I was a bit arrogant like that. I think they they haven't these middle-class friends of mine <laughs> oh, what I wouldn't do for my parents to offer to buy me driving lessons and they're having a bit of angst about it I was you know I was, I was so like that but as I've gone through life and understood more about people and stories and things like that I've, I realize there's a lot of the same stuff in the background it's just packaged differently. Yeah, just dressed differently. Yeah, yeah. It also comes with a lot of love and a lot of really good stuff. I had good stuff too, but of, of a very different sort. So it's really hard for children, I think, and teenagers to, to actually confront their parents. I was able to confront my mother around stuff. It didn't do any good for her, but it did good for me. But to actually say, you know, you didn't get that right. Mm. This is do you realize when you did that 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 had this impact no there are a lot of children who can't say that to the parents because they feel that the parents wouldn't because the parents love them and they know they love them and they love their parents they don't want to hurt their parents they think if they say that they're going to hurt their parents you know it's that it's really tied up but the the blessing if you like of my chaotic upbringing is it gave me some clarity and an ability to go I need to sort this out mm. and consequently I still have a lot of friends who are a little bit older than me who are still struggling in a big way haven't let go of some of their stuff around their parents. So how, when you when you went to Bristol, how was your relationship with your mum uh, during that time? Well, my mum was in London, and mm -hmm. that was a good distance. But I, I did persist in trying to have a relationship with her. Um, and they, um, so I'd go backwards and forwards to London of a weekend here and there, and she came up occasionally. And there was a point where she came off the alcohol. Okay. And... Um, at that point, when she was conscious, I said to her, I can, because she still had an amazing ability to, to, to hurt me without even realizing it. Um, I said to her, I can, I, I can be your friend. And I'd, also, I had a baby at 21, so that changed things a bit. But between that, as soon as I had a baby, my relationship with mum went wrong. But between mm. that, 
and 21, I kept on trying to have a relationship with her. I did warn her that if she ever went off the rails again, that was it. I couldn't do it. Because in a way, the sad thing is with my mum, she's from New Zealand. And I was her only child. And there was no other family around. So all the pressure was on me. And she, and I, she would put a lot of, try to put a lot of the guilt stuff on me around that. But she did me a lot of damage. Now, a lot of my friends would go, but she's your mum. She's your mum. You've got to, because eventually I had to cut off. Yes. And I got... I got um, there's nothing wrong with protecting yourself, and especially well, if you had a baby. To, I absolutely have to, especially once I had the baby, because I didn't want my child to grow up. My, well, my daughter actually got into an accident because of a bad decision I made when I let her go out with my mum one day. Oh. And I realised at that point that that wasn't right, and I couldn't have my daughter growing up thinking this is normal behaviour. And I had to, and you know, I couldn't seem to be able to find any middle ground with my mum. I, I gave her every opportunity to be different but even though she wasn't drinking she was with this guy and it just sent her I think she just her brain had gone just after all those years of abuse there was not much rationality left so I had to protect myself and more important my child and it was my child that forced me to do that but I'd still got a lot of um strange sort of you know from the outside from friends they couldn't understand it they go oh but he's your mum you've got to you know they're all these and I said to them, the only way I could describe her is if I went to my mom's and I come back covered in physical bruises, not one of you would tell me to go back and deal uh, with my mom. You uh, can't see the bruises. So that's what I'm talking about here, you know, every time I go. And that's why it's so hard, isn't it? So for teenage, for anybody really, <laughs> there's, yeah. it's the physical stuff you can see, a broken arm, a black eye, whatever. But the emotional stuff you carry internally, nobody, nobody can, unless you tell them the details but even when you tell them the details these people they knew the details they knew oh. very good friends of a lot of them are still with and they've come to understand it but mm. um they they, they this there's something thanks there's almost something there's a sanct, sanctity about that relationship with mother that people when that gets broken they can't understand it they can't understand that it can be that broken or that it's not repairable or that no matter what there's some duty maybe it's also because I was a daughter and not a son as well I don't know if it's something to be of daughters and mothers there's something there that's you know um I had this other mother who I stayed in I stayed in contact with Sue for right up until you know she died and actually even with my both my mums are, are dead now and my bio mum I was with her when she went finally in the last moment and then it's in that moment of death I was able to tell her I love her and felt feel safe enough to say it you know just to stop being you know I used anger to keep her away needed to but as soon as she went I was able to not be angry anymore so I think that what I you know saying how I felt I was probably just very angry as a child and maybe that was the fire that drove me yes yes (laughs) and protected you and protected me yeah but it, but it leaks into every other relationship. So it, and then became destructive. Yeah, it becomes destructive, exactly. Oh, my, my oh. phone warning me of my battery power. Oh, okay, okay. So, so that's okay. Oh, okay, okay. I just, so, you know, I just want to thank you for sharing from the heart like that. I didn't, I honestly didn't know your story. And um, you shared so much and you've come so far and I was I'm just amazed that in in like when you were traveling when you're little and a, tw- a baby when you were 21 so much happened in your life yeah and you, you managed to turn it around and learn the lessons and into something positive and I mean yeah, well, it's I, amazing 
well, you know, what I would say, there's a part of, you know, the nasty voice that's still there goes, well, you haven't really done really well in your professional life and you've never made lots of money and la 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 And there's this little critic that goes, but then the, the, the nice voice goes, well, actually, I've not become a drug addict. Mm-hmm. I've not fallen off the rails. I've not gone mad. I've had two amazing children who are still my friends. It still surprises me that they want to talk to me because I had oh. such an awful relationship with them. We enjoyed spending time together. And I'm now in a relationship which I'm kind of like three and a half, four years in. And I'm thinking I might be able to do this after all, because I've always believed I would never be able to do that. <clears throat> and I'm still dealing with some of the stuff from back then being in this. Because when I'm single, it's much easier. But I decided you know, I'm going to do this and I can. Mm-hmm. And, and um, yeah, I got sick. I sometimes think because of the nature of where my illness was, which was right down in my bowels, that it was really old and I was getting rid of the last thing that I had okay. to get rid of. But the, the main thing I could say is I've had to keep at it all along. I've, everything I've done, I've, I've had to stay with in order to just find something is, is I think the most important message I could say is find something that you enjoy that's not on a screen and it's mm-hmm. not a drug and it's mm-hmm. not feeding yourself or beating yourself up it's like take up knitting if that's what it takes you know write learn an instrument uh go if it, maybe physicality is your thing go go walking just drag yourself out by the scruff of your neck <laughs> if you have to you know because not everybody won't always have someone else there to do it uh-huh. If you've got someone to talk to, great, but sometimes you need more than that. And there's always a Samaritan, so there's always someone you can talk to somewhere. I think we've just got to put down, have days off internet, perhaps. I mean, it's coming out in the news all the time now, isn't it? Yeah. Days off, detoxing on every yep. front and, and learn to use it again in a good way. Because I think it's amazing. Yeah. Technology is amazing. I'm not a technophobe. You know, I think, oh, it's incredible, but it's grown up so fast. Yeah. So, so thanks again for your time. And, um, yeah, I just, my hat, if I had a hat, I'd take it off to you. <laughs> um, and you're right, because I think young people, everybody needs to know that when you really work on your stuff, on your horrible stuff, you know, good, you, you do learn, you do grow, you do develop and you learn that next time it happens, you can get over it. Like I said, when you go in the pit, you get a bit quicker at coming accepting it I, I see it as um I see it as a toolkit you need a toolkit yes yes and then it's up to you to use your tools some people just Brilliant. spend the whole life tools but never use them you have Brilliant. to use your tools you have to get your tools and you have to use them I love that because I just almost want my podcast to be like a an extension of a toolkit where there's all these different things depending on what you're going through and you can pick up and you can go oh I could do that I could do this you know see <laughs> see what works that's the only way to do it yeah. isn't it trial yeah. and error it's not the same for everybody and that's mm. another thing one person's medicine isn't another person's it's finding mm. your thing and deciding to be other than what's going on and right make now. the choice because <laughs> yeah. you're worth it as the advert says <laughs> yeah. worth it, absolutely. Oh, so thank you yeah. Kalo um, and just uh, thanks guys for listening guys if you want to follow me on Instagram it's young limitless podcast all one word if you follow me I'll follow you back so uh, take okay. care Bye-bye. I have to join Instagram, won't I? Yes, Bye-bye. you will. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>